0: Very good. Okay, so we, uh, we're we back into our study, where we're looking at the nature of life as Christ teaches it, as the New Testament scriptures teach it. Okay. And what we're going to be doing, we're, we're, we've been spending our time in the Gospel of John, and I think we'll look at a couple more texts. We are cherry-picking a little bit, because if you really wanted to study the concept of life from John, you'd begin it Chapter 1, verse 1, and go all the way through. So we're cherry-picking some key texts along this theme. And then we're going to go into um, just a little bit from Luke and Acts, and then into some of the Pauline writings, um, primarily with maybe ending on uh, Revelation. So that's kind of where we're going, and we're going to just take whatever time we want as we get there. My The feedback, contrary to um, maybe my doubts, is that people are getting tired of this theme and wanting to move on to something else. The feedback I've received has been positive, that people are enjoying this meditation, enjoying looking at the scriptures and thinking along this theme. So, we'll continue. If you feel otherwise, I have very thick skin. Let (laughs) let me know. Whisper in my ear that you'd like to speed it along, and we'll do that. Let's open up to John 11. And here we'll get... um, we'll get kind of another window on this theme of life. And again, what we've seen so far is that, I mean, this oversimplifies it a great deal, that the Father is the living Father, John 6, and he gives life to the Son, and the Son gives life to us specifically through his flesh and blood that we eat and drink and thus have life in us. This is all John 6. And then the Holy Spirit is added in by our Lord, that he also is a giver of life. We know that we can't have faith apart from the Spirit. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So in what sense does does the Holy Spirit give us life? In the sense that he gives us faith in the one who is life, and that is our connection to him. It is the way we receive life. Um, we laid the foundation of baptism, being new life, indeed new birth, to be born again into a new life—that life which is Christ. And so we we just I'm reminiscing over these themes that we've covered in previous weeks in regarding to John's gospel, so that um, we come with with all the necessary theological freight here. Um, to this section, we'll open to John chapter eleven, as I mentioned, and let's just look at um, verses seventeen through twenty-seven. Okay, where are we? Um, we are at the triumphal entry as Jesus is entering Jerusalem. Isn't this a remarkable thing, just as an aside, that Jesus entering into Jerusalem takes place in John chapter 12. The vast majority of John's gospel is spent in Holy week, more generally, more broadly, and even more specifically, the Monday, Ma- Thursday, Good Friday, and then Easter. Easter and the events that go after. So much of uh, John's Gospel is weighted toward the Passion. Um, that's true for the other Gospels as well, just not quite as prominent as it is in John's Gospel. So already here in verse 12, we're at the triumphal entry. Jesus has gone in, everyone's shouting Hosanna. Um, Jesus is fulfilling, knowingly fulfilling the Old Testament Scriptures and the riding on the donkey. And then um, just for the sake of it, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Interesting language of glorification here. When is it that the disciples remember that these things had been written about him and been done to him? Probably Pentecost. Probably the sending of the Holy Spirit, um, who will will bring to your remembrance all these things that I have done. So here we see glorification leaning toward Pentecost. In just a moment, we're going to see glorification leaning toward the the Passion and Crucifixion. So in other words, and um, I know the men are studying the Gospel of John, so hopefully this dovetails. But in the, in the Gospel of John, if you go looking for some of the hallmarks of the Synoptic Gospel, some of the hallmark events, you're not going to find them. For example, where's the Transfiguration? It's not obviously there. Where, is the, where are the words of institution? Not obviously there. Now we think they're in John 6. What about, um, what about the Transfiguration? What about uh, Pentecost? a verse like this starts hinting at the amazing way in which John presents the gospel. John sees, there's a great case to be made, I think it's, I'm convinced of it, um, the more I study John's gospel, the more I'm convinced of it. In fact, that John envisions the cross as this climactic event, that in the cross is the glorification in the fullest sense, and in the way that John explains the cross, it's really rather remarkable. You see a kind of incarnational theology. The Word becoming flesh all the way from the prologue. And you see, obviously, sacrifice. You see an end to um, (laughs) an overarching liturgy, a liturgical cycle of feasts that is in John. But you also see an end to the Passover liturgy take place? You see that as he is lifted up, the way that John describes it includes also his resurrection. It's on the cross in John's Gospel that he hands over the Holy Spirit, which would be Pentecost. And of course, as he's lifted up, you have the ascension. So you have all these motifs. It's as if if John is doing us this wonderful, beautiful, it's complex, it's artistic, but this wonderful, beautiful, artistic picture of The crucifixion of Jesus lifted up all the key events, all brought into one, and all shining forth with glory. Okay, so that as an aside, because we see this language of glorification, we want to pay attention to that. It's very significant in John's Gospel. All right, verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. Was that just last week that we looked at that account? couple weeks ago, I can't remember. Honestly, feels like ages upon ages ago. But we did take a look at that account where Jesus says that I am the I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Okay, that's our common way of thinking whoever lives and believes in me will Never die. That's our uncommon way of thinking. Jesus teaches both. And again, we see there that life, even I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. So life isn't a thing unto itself, nor is resurrection a thing unto itself. Life and resurrection, properly speaking, are Jesus. This is a really profound way of thinking and it's kind of one of these limit like it's one of these paradigm shifts that then brings with it kind of a l- limitless number of different ways of perceiving maybe an an entrance to this way of thinking is when jesus says i am the truth that will as we let it uh just entirely transform our concept of truth to think first and foremost that truth is a person is not something we're accustomed to. You know, sometimes, I mean, again, to just try to give your, your brain a, a window into this way of thinking, um, the philosophers ask the question, can God lie? And of course the argument is, well, if he can't, then there's something he cannot do, so then he must not be all-powerful, and so no, he can tell a lie. But here we glimpse something altogether different, don't we? How can the one who is the truth lie? Impossible. Impossible. So the theological answer, not the philosophical answer, but the theological answer is: No, God can't lie. How can He who is the truth be uh, not Himself? Right? It's not possible for Him to not be Himself. He is the truth. Okay. So um, He is the life. He is the resurrection it's not these things aren't properly properly in John's way of thinking in John's way of theology these things aren't events they're a person all right so again 17 the crowd that had been with him when he called lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continue to bear witness john tells us that they wanted lazarus dead as much as they wanted jesus dead Um, that week because they knew that this he was being used as this sort of ultimate proof that Jesus is who he says he is and has the power even over death. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign, namely raising Lazarus. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. A beautiful Lutheran, maybe more broadly Christian tradition, I don't know, um, but sometimes this is um, put on the pulpit in a kind of placard form so that the preacher who goes up there always remembers what his task is. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, as fascinating as your life experiences may be or your contemplations this last Monday at the gas station or um you know the last nature walk you went on that's not why we're here pastor we're here because we want to see Jesus rather profound statement here philip went and told andrew andrew and philip went and told jesus and jesus answered them the hour has come now remember Remember, all the way back to Jesus' first miracle at um, the wedding in Cana. Remember what he says to his mother when she says, they've run out of wine. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Here's the signal that it has come. One of several in John's Gospel. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this is Holy Week. This is leading up to what? The Passion. And so we can see now the glorification is going to be all the more clear in the next line um, that he's referring to his death. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What on earth is he talking about? Who's the grain of wheat that falls into the earth? Yeah, he is. He is. He has life in and of himself, like a seed. You could say that seed has life, but its life is solitary. Only when that seed goes into the earth and dies, does new life spring forth and spring forth in an abundance of other seeds that have life, all derived from the one seed. So you can see here, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So here we see that it's by his death that we have life. Now this is this is part of why. Um, when people don't like the crucifix and use the language of, well, because Jesus is risen, I go, have you not, you know, in my brain, I don't usually say this because I try to be polite, um, but have you not read the Gospel of John? In the Gospel of John, life comes from his death. Now, life comes from his death. How else are you going to eat his flesh and drink his blood unless he has died? How else are you going to get flesh and blood separated from one another? This is the language of the Old Testament sacrifices. This is why Jesus, um, this is why the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is in many and various ways a sacrifice. But in terms of just a noun, what is it that we are partaking of? It is absolutely 100% Old Testament definition sacrifice. How do we know? You're eating his body in one action and drinking his blood in another. If the body and blood have been separated, that is on account of the sacrifice in keeping with the Mosaic Law. So simply the fact that he gives us, and this, by the way, I mean, this is just one of many reasons to kind of be against intinction or communion in one kind or all these other aberrations. I mean, again, remember how annoyed we can be with this. It's like if Jesus says X, we say not X. If Jesus says drink, we say how about if I not drink? If Jesus says eat, say how about if I dip in nosh? Um, You know, it's just, if Jesus says bread, how about if I use crackers? If Jesus uses wine, how about if I use grape juice? If Jesus says is, how about if I say is not? I mean, it's just, it's, it's pure rubbish once you realize, like, the metagame that's being played here. It's like Jesus says, it's like some kind of perverse game of Simon Says. Jesus says, and the devil convinces people to say and do the exact opposite. Oh, a little nauseating. But as we partake of that body and blood, that flesh and blood... We're partaking of the one who is sacrificed once and for all. We're partaking of the sacrifice. By his death we have life. And so that theme continues here as he it is the New Testament in his cup, it is the New Testament on the cross. They're one and the same. Okay? And what we're seeing is that only through his death do we have life. So again, with the crucifix there is no more profound sign of life that one could possibly have apart from the sacraments themselves instituted by Christ. In terms of of those things that are neither commanded nor forbidden, there is no greater sign in the church of eternal life than, ironically, the crucifix. It is also by death that he destroys death. So there is frankly, frankly, no greater possible sign of the resurrection than the crucifix. Not the empty cross. There were three empty crosses that day. Not as some sort of construction of an open tomb. That's, it, it is, properly speaking, not by his rising from the grave that he destroys death. It is rather his vindication that God raises him from the grave it is for his vindication his justification and therefore also ours but properly speaking where death is destroyed where the resurrection is wrought is in his his faithfulness unto perfection his fulfilling of the law unto God and unto neighbor that's us on the cross in the most hostile impossible of all circumstances he is faithful to the one who is life and receives life such that he can give it to whom he will and he does this in the act only of his death. All right, well, I've belabored the point. But John's Gospel has a seeing in a much more complex way. And we love it for that reason. Kind of ironic that John's Gospel is the Gospel we give to... Uh new Christians or non-Christians, and we say, here, take this, you know, because of John 3.16 and these kinds of statements. And and fine, I've got no problem with that. I mean, the gospel is very clear and very simple. It's John's gospel is kind of like the ocean. You know, you can go play in the shoreline, but just because you play in the shoreline and beckon others to play in the shoreline doesn't mean that it doesn't go down to the Marianas Trench or whatever, um, because it has, it has probably more depth to it than any of the other uh, gospels. All right, so here from Jesus' own, own lips then, um, unless the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. How is life being used in this sense? Yeah, yeah, bodily life, earthly life, whoever loves this thing right here is going to lose the essence of who he is is going to lose his life we don't want to squeeze too hard on this because sometimes when you squeeze too hard and try to get too definite with the words of christ you you lose their profundity you end up cutting yourself off from uh, the the deeper meanings of what he's after but suffice it to say what he has in mind here is this earthly life whoever loves his life this earthly life Loses it. Now, this is one of the reasons why we don't have to scrap and scrape for this life. It's one of the reasons why Christians in good conscience can say, Hey, I fulfilled my vocations. No one's immediately dependent upon me. Um, this this malady, this affliction, this um, you know, illness has come upon me. I don't have to fight for every scrap of life and try to claw out 15 more minutes of, of life. Um, no, we're at peace. We're at peace. It's why even if you have a bucket list, and no problem, I don't condemn, I'm not throwing any rocks, um, the spirit of a bucket list, though, is contrary to the spirit of, you know, oh, I've got to love this life, I've got to take advantage of this life, I've got to do all these things because God knows if I get to heaven, I'll never get to do them. (laughs) Remember that meditation? (laughs) What a a silly way of thinking. What a silly way of thinking. As if there won't be joys that embrace, embody, and eclipse the highest joys of this earth. So, um, whoever loves his life loses it. And there's such profound wisdom just in these words. I'll try not to to teach on just these words for the rest of the time, but I could. I love them so much. Um, Because this life includes also everything you have. If you cling to any one thing, any one achievement, any one status or station, any one person, you're clinging to this life, you're loving this life, and you're subject to losing your true life. Goods, fame, child and wife, let these all be gone. That's not just mere bravado. That's not just in times of persecution. That's really at the essence of our faith and relationship with God. How can you love someone more deeply than you love God? How can you love something more deeply than you could love Him? Um, if, if you do, if you love your life or some component of it, you lose your life. You see. We have lifetimes to experience this. And while the whole front half of life, generally speaking, is growth and receiving more and more blessings, then comes that season where, they, where it starts to shorten and indeed flip. And all of a sudden, it, the remainder of the second half of our life becomes largely a withdrawal of those blessings. You trusted him? while he was giving? Can you trust him while he takes away? You blessed him when he showered you with blessings? Can you bless him when those blessings one by one are stripped away? Is he your life or not? It's a foundational question. The more we can ground ourselves in this, then the more um, accurately we're going to perceive our lives and those things in our lives, the more accurately and proportionately all the puzzle pieces are going to fit. We're not going to subject ourselves to any forms of subtle idolatry. We're going to say, take it all. If I have Jesus, I have life. So this is, um, is this difficult teaching? Which teaching of Jesus isn't difficult, <laughs> but... That's what's going on here. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life. Now what is hating life? Well, it's exactly what I've been articulating. Um, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. What's What's going on there? Preference. Preference. And that's essentially what's going on here. Okay. We don't prefer our life in this world. We would gladly give up all things. We hate our life in that sense. We hate our life in this world. And thus we will keep our life, it, we will keep our life for eternal life. Why? Because our life is Christ. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where is Christ going? going to his cross. This is where he says quite explicitly, whoever would follow me must take up his banner of victory. Whoever would follow me must take up his cross. Um, To follow Jesus is cruciform. I sometimes say it this way in I think sometimes you guys look at me cross-eyed. Like, what's the proof text for that? Well, here's one. I don't know. There's probably thousands of others, um, but but here's one. Um, when I when I say that this life is Good Friday, and Easter is coming, so we can't expect Easter things. It's not yet. That hour has not yet come. What we ought to expect is Good Friday things, knowing knowing that this is precisely what it means to follow Jesus. We follow him in this life to the cross, that in the next life with him we are raised, realizing that he is our life now and then in the profoundest sense. So that brings a cruciform shape to our lives. This is what it means to be a Simultaneously, a member of the royal priesthood. What do priests do? Among other things, they sacrifice. And what are the sacrifices that they render unto the Lord? Themselves. Present your bodies, present your members as living sacrifices. The whole of the Christian life is a sacrifice. Guess who the offering is? you. <laughs> but but for each one of us, for each one of us, I, I'm, I'm a member of the royal priesthood by baptism. My sacrifice is myself, that you're a member of the royal priesthood. Your sacrifice is yourself. Um, we do that vocationally in the various forms and stations that God has given us. But in the most deep, macro, profound sense, whatever you want to think, John sense, we recognize that we lay down everything so that we may have the one who is everything. We lay down all aspects of this life so that we may possess the one who is life. All right, and as Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we are going to our glorification, which is, frankly, our death in faith, that we might be raised with Christ conformed into his image for all eternity. All right, let's pause there. I see a couple hands creeping up, daring to get a word in edgewise. Um, I see a hand in the back, and then, did you have a comment? Um, And then a hand up in the front. Do we have a microphone, or do you want me to try to uh, re-encapsulate the question? Let me do that. Okay, please. I'll try to restate it for those online. Um, Would you go ahead? Yeah, I don't want to use your name because it's online and you could be persecuted <laughs> later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, back
1: when you said when we were talking about uh uh not pressing that too hard that too hard. Yeah.
0: City, uh, that's what she loved. And it... What was she... Lot's wife's name again? I, what, I thought it, it was. Sarah? Was it Sarah? That doesn't ring a bell to me. Dale, what? what Does she, just, she doesn't have a first name. It's just Lot's wife. Oh, okay. Lot's wife. Oh. That's interesting, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> lot, her Lot in life. <laughs>
0: Uh, so my at any dad, rate, my she, dad joke senses are tingling here. <laughs> <laughs> she looks back, as you know, and yes. Yes. to
1: the the city of Sodom being destroyed and turns to a pillar of salt. Right. And, right. you know, the rest of us, are, rest of them are going off into some sort of freedom or life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and she doesn't make it so. Can, you, can we press it that hard? Is it,
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That's, a, that's a beautiful, concrete expression of, of this theology, is we don't want to look at this life like Lot's wife. I, I, frankly, I don't, I'm not going to wax eloquent on this, just maybe a statement to you know, offend you a little bit. But this is why I think nostalgia is an effect of the curse, and really we should be very careful in indulging nostalgia. It does, there's more of a curse, there's more of it turning us to salt than we might like to think. Um, there's a reason why Paul St. Paul writes, and I take this quite broadly, forgetting that which lies behind, I press on toward the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. There's a sense of the Christian life being very healthy and always forward. In fact, sometimes it's um, not used in the psychological sense or in the common sense. We frequently use it introversion. But introversion is the idea of, um, as a spiritual malady, so we're redefining it here. Don't worry if you're an introvert. Um, we're redefining it here as, as like a spiritual malady, but it's just that introversion then is not being able to look forward and move forward. It's being stuck on the inside and stuck on the past and stuck on analysis. And it's uh, it's toxic spiritually, like that that aspect. Yeah, we need to, um, we need to recount the mercies of God to us in our lives and move forward. (laughs) So yeah, I think, thank you for that. I think a very concrete example, kind of historic event, yes, and sort of parabolic event, like as a living parable, um, that image. Thank you. Right up here was one. So you're talking about our lives being cruciform, and mm-hmm. I, I ran across a Luther quote that I think is quite fitting here. So Hopefully he agrees. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As with all Luther quotes, you know, let the reader understand. But yeah. Um, yeah. He, uh, he said, the way Satan deals with us is he first offers us heaven, and then he gives us hell. Mm. And then the way God deals with us is he first gives us hell, and then we receive heaven. Yeah. I yeah. think that's... I think well, said. Yeah. well said. Well said. Yeah, I sympathize. I really do. I, I sympathize with those Christians that long for purgatory because there's this sense in which I don't want to, I don't want to enter heaven as I am. I want to be corrected. I want to be made right. Um, but that longing isn't fulfilled in some imaginary place made up by medieval theologians trying to extract money from people. Um, that rather, is, is, is this reality? C.S. Lewis was the first place I ran across this and then realized that he got it from the Bible. And many people have said it this way. Um, this life is purgatory. What is, what does, uh, Peter call this life? He calls it a fiery trial. What's the word for, um, where, where the dross is burnt off and the gold is purified? That's what St. Peter calls. What is the, what is the root of, uh, or what really rather, what is the, the Greek word for fire? Pergas. The purgatory is now, and the purgatory culminates in death when the old Adam is finally cleansed from us. So that longing for purgatory um, takes place now and has its kind of has its kind of connection, as Luther's saying, with right now we should be desiring that death of the old Adam. We should be desiring to live out that crucifixion, knowing that Easter is coming. The hell is now, the, the heaven is to come. The death is now, the life in Christ is to come. Um, the affliction now, the glory then. And so that's what we're all waiting for. So a very skewed version of Christianity that tries to drag the glory and the finality into this life. And I'm pretty convinced too, that this is what's behind a lot of Jesus' um, investment advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you follow Jesus as a financial investor, you'll be broke tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> but what is, but what, is his, what is his investment advice, um, in, all, in all seriousness? Treasure. treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. If you're investing for glory and success and heaven in this life, you're a fool. Because rust destroys, moth eats, thieves break in and steal, or you fool, your soul is required of you this very night. So, what is our investment strategy? There. And there's nothing impious, there's nothing um, legalistic, there's nothing, uh, I don't know why we get so hung up on these things. There's nothing, I mean, just what Jesus says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven not even a cup of cold water to a little child, loses its reward. I see it all. I'm marking it all. I love this. Jesus doesn't keep track of our sins. (laughs) He doesn't keep track of score there. But he does keep track of those good things that we've somehow eked out and done by the power of his Holy Spirit. He keeps meticulous track of those and even embellishes and gives more than is deserved in reward. But that's what we want to have an eye on. We want to have an eye not on this life, Ideally, this life is what we need to get by, contentedness with that, with a full investment in that which is to come. What we're doing right now is we are um, sowing so that in that day we may reap. And if we confuse those two, it can lead ultimately to what our Lord is saying, whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will will keep it for eternal life. Thank you. Please.
1: I love how the pursuit and the storing up of treasures in heaven and the pursuit of Mm -hmm. rewards is lost in the mundane of our vocation.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a great point.
1: And how we're going to get there and we're going to go, what? Yeah.
0: When? What?
1: And it's just going to be just completely, uh, we're just... How is it that we're just we're we're pursuing it yet we're not mindful of it? You know, I mean,
0: right, right, yeah. The old Adam can pervert anything, can't he? Yeah, even great things. We can pervert this biblical teaching of reward and merit in such a way that then we view ourselves as like living only for there was. A, there's a certain evangelical pastor in our area. I I don't want to name him because that's I'm not really about like. Naming and shaming, at least today. Um, but he's, he's. I heard him say, or heard him preach, um, where he basically said, um, "I'm, I'm doing all my good works right now because I don't want to be a servant or an unimportant person uh, in the next life. I'm doing all my good works now so that God will promote me. I want to be in the, I want to be at the top with God in the penthouse, controlling things. It's mm-hmm. like." <sighs> okay, but now our response to that can't be to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, anyone who thinks of rewards or invests for the future is, is like this guy, is wrong, is self-serving, is self. No, we can't do that either. So we want to distance ourselves from the abuse while retaining the truth of God's Word. And that's that's what you are articulating so well, um, is, is this idea that as we're going about our vocation, I mean, you, I, parenthood is such a great example, because you've already poured the Cheerios before you even know you've done it, and you don't even think about it. But if not even a cup of cold water escapes the eye of our Lord, then neither does a bowl of cheerios or whatever else you may give and so you know there's this there's this beautifulness but i think why i think why god gives us this sense of reward and why frankly frankly it's everywhere in the scriptures it's always been helpful but as we as we get into these dark and latter days everything is meaningless and appears meaningless and appears without cons- without without consequence without value without worth And there's great pressure to um, let our hearts grow cold. There's great pressure to give up. There's great pressure to say God doesn't see, God doesn't care. And why does God in his word through Christ and his apostles pummel us with this idea of rewards if not to combat that very evil within us, right? No, it does have meaning. Nothing's vain. Nothing's lost. I'm watching it all. It's not your works follow you. In, in the book of Revelation. So, you know, you don't have to think in a self-righteous category. Please don't. Um, but nor do you need to think in a despairing category. Please don't. Um, entrust yourself to the Lord. Work vigorously. At the end of life, you say, we are unprofitable servants. Um, that's our attitude, right? But that doesn't mean that then God agrees with that. He agrees with the attitude, but then he blesses. I mean, where do we see? We see this all the time in the Scriptures. We see this in the prodigal Son. The prodigal son returns and says to his father, make me as a hireling. The father accepts the attitude but doesn't agree with it and treats him as a son. You know, So that's the same thing. We want to we have this attitude of, I've only done my duty, and even that I fail to do. Lord, have mercy. And it's just that God in his graciousness doesn't agree with that, and he blesses us as if we were faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. Who, me? <laughs> yes, you. With your sins blotted out by my blood, yes, you.
1: And that's what I love. I love the fact that we can press in in our vocation, our doctrine of vocation, Mm -hmm. and it brings meaning to what otherwise seems meaningless—the pouring of the Cheerios, the changing of the diapers, and the things that everybody, you know, the rest of the world wants to say, "No, you're that—that is is meaningless. You should be pursuing greater things like a a Golden Globe Award or a Right. Uh, whatever the case may be, right? Right,
0: absolutely. Uh, you
1: should be pursuing something of great worth. But we can press in with our doctrine of vocation and say, no, yeah. God is uh, w- blesses mm-hmm. uh, the changing of the diaper. Yeah,
0: yeah. And
1: that there's, there's no higher calling right now in your Christian work, mm-hmm. in your Christian vocation, than to go and change this diaper. Yeah, right.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point, and I think too, um, you know, we want to balance our understanding of vocations. I think um, sometimes vocation is is mistaken as okay, well, God calls you to be a father, a mother, a child, or a, an employer, an employee. These are the these are the vocations proper. Um, so then, anything outside of that, you don't want to do because then you wouldn't be Lutheran. No, that's no, 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 no. Now we've misunderstood vocation, right? Um, so. So, you can embrace vocation and realize that you don't need to be a pastor or a missionary or a monk or a nun to have, you know, to have status in God's sight. He, he embraces you in your vocations. The Large Catechism is all about this. The Large Catechism is all about how these are the commandments God has given. These are the things he delights in, right? These are the truly good works. Um, and yet we don't need to let this artificially stunt us. I mean, if, if you want to go proclaim the gospel to your neighbors all the time, if you want to, um, you know, engage in all kinds of activities in the church? Please do! Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a vocational aspect to our lives in the church as well that's lost in America because we view everything so consumeristic. You know, if Rhodey preaches one more sermon like that, I'm going to go down to Burger King, the other church, and have it my way, Um, you know. (laughs) This is the way we think of church, and, and so then when, you know, and, and we kind of think about this too, like if somebody from the council taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, would you mind doing such and such a position? We go, oh, that's too much for me. I couldn't be troubled, um, or I, I would, wouldn't would be up for the task. Well, if that's not a vocatio, a calling, I'm not sure what is, because you're, the leaders of your church have decided that even if you're not fit for the task, we will help you until you are. And so embrace that calling. So there's, um, yeah, 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 yeah. There's where where you've got all these abuses going on all around us and that we're combating. You know this, you got to be a minister of coffee or else you're not going to have a big jewel in your crown in heaven, you know. You've got to go on so many short-term mission trips that end up costing you way more than it benefits the people. there, Or whatever the aberration may be. These are the things you have to do in order... These works of supererogation, that was the technical term in, in the medieval period, and it's, it still should be the term. We should resurrect that today, because that's what they are. You have to do all these special works, otherwise you're not doing anything special, and God doesn't notice or care. It's so great to have a doctrine of vocation to set against that error and say, here are the truly good works. And yet we don't want to use that in such a way that that excludes us from those additional kinds of things that we desire to do, and and, and, and are called to do, yeah. So there's a fullness there to um, what we have in store.
1: You keep highlighting the doctrine of the drunken monk riding the uh, the mule. Yeah, we're gonna fall off on one side or fall the other. Right we we just keep falling off. Yep. Uh, uh, we can't stay on the stupid mule.
0: This yeah, this is the way. This is the way. Yeah, the, um, no, the opposite of Mandal- an error I is- think
1: that's Mandalorian. <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, but this is it this is the opposite of an error is just the opposite error and the truth is found in God's word which is very frequently right in the middle Satan loves nothing more than to take a grain of truth and spin a lie around it and he does that on one side or the other he creates a ditch in one side or the other and we want to stay on that, on that narrow path okay, so um, this idea this idea of life Pastor, can I do one more? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, In
1: verse uh, 24, Jesus is talking about himself, the wheat that falls into the ground and Mm. dies, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden in in verse 25, he starts talking about, it looks like, us. So could you explain the transition there? It seems rather abrupt to me.
0: In verse 25?
1: Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden he's talking about he who loves his life loses it. Yeah. And in verse 24, he's talking about the seed that falls in the ground, which is him.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've got no problem if you want to say that 25 is is about Christ first and foremost. Oh, um, I okay, get it. Okay, interesting thought. I get it. Whoever loves his life loses it. Um, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Is Christ one who loves his life in this world and will do everything he can to retain it? Or is he one who hates his life in this world and will lay it down? He'll lay it down. So I've got no problem if you want to kind of put Christ in there. I think I think when he introduces the idea of um loving his life and losing it, he's clearly expanding beyond himself. Um mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So he's speaking more broadly. But I've got no problem whatsoever saying Christ is the the one whom we follow who hates his life um and thus and thus gains it and retains
1: it. So so 25 is like a principle that applies to everyone in Christ in particular, and we're supposed to imitate him. Yeah, that. absolutely. Is that...
0: This whole thing is imitating Christ. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, if we can't imitate, if we sort of out, try to theologically outlaw the imitation of Christ, we're going to lose, like, <laughs> okay. half the Bible. All right. It's just, it's it's not, um, you know, we want to be careful in, in terms of, like, the question of justification of one standing before God, and we don't stand before God or fall before God based on our effort or our, our progress or how we grayed out at following Jesus, okay? But once we've got rid of those aberrations, we've communicated justification plainly, we've answered that question, now we need to embrace the fullness of the gospel, which is that the Christian life is patterned after following Christ, and patterned after taking up our cross just as he has taken up his, being faithful unto death just as he was faithful unto death, hating his life that he and we with him might have life. So, yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, he must follow me and where I am there will my servant be also which is the cross before the resurrection and the resurrection um, before eternal glory and that's our pattern as well ok so we've um, only done one text but I hope, um, I hope it's fruitful. I hope it's um, that you gain some value out of you know, meditating on this text, meditating on these themes, and the way it uh, connects with us. Let's next week look um, in terms of Jesus' high priestly prayer. We'll look at chapter 17, and, and I promise we'll actually just be briefly there. And then we're going to jump into Luke, where um, it begins with two men crucified with Jesus on the cross, both reviling him and... According to the gospel accounts, after a single statement of Jesus, we might infer by his conduct on the cross, by what men, the insults that men are hurling, and how he responds by not responding, one of those men crucified with him stops reviling him and turns and says, "Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom." And Jesus speaks his second word from the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. All right? So that will be our foundation then for the remainder of the study as we look at what it means to be with Jesus in paradise, awaiting the resurrection of our bodies. The Lord be with you.